This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Simon Longstaff. I'm Executive Director of the Ethics Centre and the co-founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Oh, oh. oh that's, very, that's very kind. Um, but that, that's not the most important thing. We're, we're here to talk about um, a, a, a quite a difficult topic, as you might imagine. So before I say anything else, I just want to uh, acknowledge a couple of things. The, the focus today is in part about um, suicide involving Indigenous people, but we all recognise that this is not a problem which is exclusively just for Indigenous people, but there are particular issues there which we want to unpack and understand. I'd say to anybody who is troubled by the topic, um, knows somebody, uh, I'd encourage you to, to think about seeking support from a range of very good services in Australia. There's people like the Black Dog Institute and Beyond Blue, so um, there are places that you can go. Um, but, and also that we're gonna to touch on issues which, which may, may affect you because we're talking about everything from taboo to Lots of different things. So I mentioned that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, on behalf of all of us, but certainly personally, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, I do so, I have kinship ties myself to the Anandaliakwa people on Groot Island and wish to acknowledge those whose traditional lands we meet on today. Uh, I think we all would wish to, to do that um, for those people. If you've got a phone, this is a bit more mundane, uh, I'd ask you just to make sure it's on silent. Uh, if you're going to be uh, tweeting, then the hashtag is hashfody. I should say that this is being uh, recorded. I think it's audio recording for this session. So if you're inclined at some point to come and ask a question, just please know that your voice will be included within that recording. So with all of those things um, addressed, I'd like now to introduce our panel some of whom you might have met in other sessions. So starting from the other end, we have Jesse Bering. Jesse is a psychologist. He's originally from the United States. He's now living and working in New Zealand and he's appeared at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas on other occasions. He's a professor of psychology. Uh, he's worked, he's written many, many different books. Um, but I think in terms of his current role as Associate Professor of Science Communication at the University of Otago. He's working on a particular book which is looking at the science behind um, suicide. Uh, so he's, he's not a psychiatrist, but he's certainly looking at the underlying scientific issues. Um, I can still evaluate you, but it doesn't yeah, really mean anything. Yeah, Sheila Watt-Cloutier uh, has travelled a vast distance from the Arctic Circle uh, she lives in Nunavut. She's an Inuit woman who has been a political leader for her community. And I'll explain the fascinating nature of how diverse that community is in a moment. She was elected political spokesman for, spokesperson sorry, for the Inuit for over a decade. She's the past chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council. And this is what's so interesting. The organisation represents 155,000 Inuit of Canada, Greenland, Alaska, and the Chukotka region um, in the far east of the Federation of Russia. So all these different divisions, which we think of lines on, the, on maps and things, united by a single uh, community and culture. 
And uh, earlier today, she spoke uh, at a session based on her book, The Right to be Cold, uh, which was to do with the fact that, you know, with climate change, we think about rising sea levels and things, but imagine if your whole culture is founded on ice. And imagine what happens when that's a threat. And then Vanessa Lee is a Wick and Merriam Nations uh, person. Uh, she's lived uh, here on the land of the Gadigal people for many years, um, working at the University of Sydney, and she's a, an epidemiologist uh, with an expert in, in health. Um, she works in uh, various networks around Indi Indigenous health management, uh, Indigenous wellbeing, and is a part of various groups that are working in. And I'm gonna get her to explain. There's a, she's got a badge on, which uh, is particularly relevant to what we're talking about today, which I'll ask her to speak in a moment. I should also just say, if you think she's sounding a little bit quiet, um, remarkably yesterday morning, she woke up with no voice at all and has managed to get here with a, with a quieter voice. And so you might have to listen really carefully. But would you please welcome all our guests? I'll start with your badge and then I'm going to come to Sheila, but can you just tell me that what sure. that's about? Uh, this, is, um, this badge is the symbol for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention Evaluation Project. It's a project that was decided needed to be developed by both the non-Indigenous um, organisations and the government at a national level to evaluate all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicide programs across the whole of Australia. and this. The symbol on it is, is calming and relaxation for Indigenous communities. It's saying it's peace across all the nations. Thank you. This is a wonderful initiative and the fact that it's happening is great. Sheila, we, um, in your session earlier on today, which we did together, um, you mentioned the fact about the arrival of um, suicide in, in your life. Mm -hmm. um, I think because uh, you grew up as in a traditional lifestyle before you were not sure whether you were removed or volu voluntarily went off to education in the south of Canada, but certainly your world suddenly changed and came back at the age of 18. And something had changed there. I just wonder if you could talk about what happened because you said you didn't really encounter suicide mm -hmm. until um, a particular development in the impact on Inuit right. peoples. Right. Well, I, I put it into the context of um, the, the historical traumas because when I was growing up very traditionally, we traveled only by dog team. I didn't know any English till I was six. We were very traditional. And uh, throughout my childhood, we were in, in safety of our culture and our surroundings, uh, which was very close-knit. And, um, and, and everybody was your parent, and we were all had this sense of safety. To fast forward, and I'll read a, something, an excerpt from my book in a few minutes to get right to the crunch of the matter, but I was 18 when we had our first suicide mm. in um, my hometown of Kudra. And since then, um, the suicide rates have skyrocketed. We are now, as Inuit, known to have the highest suicide rates in North America. And um, a lot of that, of course, is, a, is the historical context of what I call the historical traumas that have happened in our world in a very short period of time. And how contained, how we have contained that trauma and the woundings and, and really just bring them out when we're under the influence and the violence starts to come out. But it, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's happened over a course of my lifetime. We had not known this 
except for very traditional ways in which long ago, when the elders would feel that they were a burden now, then they would go off. But that was survival-based. This is not survival-based suicides that we, that the phenomenon of, of Inuit suicide. It wasn't a violent survive. ending of one's life. So no, much as altruistic a, suicide. It was, yeah. a, it was a resignation yeah. that one's life That's was right. coming to an end and you, you did so. That's do, you, right. do, you, do you want to read the particular... I could, I could. It'll, it'll take about five minutes, though, That's because no, it's, okay. it's a powerful piece. I think, I think we'd piece. like to hear it. Yeah, because yeah. I think it's a powerful piece that really... Because, you know, in, in, the, in the work that I did in my life, I mean, people know me more now as a person who's worked on... Uh, environmental protection of the people of the Arctic, you know, climate change and the toxins and so on. But in my other life, I was a student counselor that worked with the young people. I was also uh, um, in, in, in trying to deal with the addictions in our communities and, and trying to see what was the root cause of all of this. And that's mm -hmm. why, in fact, I wrote this book, is to put those, those kinds of statistics into a context so that the younger generation can better recognize and understand that our world is not the way it is uh, because we're weak or mm. because we're, we don't have the ability to adapt. There are concrete reasons that are broken down. And I think it's very really important that people understand, you, you've specifically in your book also said the environmental issues are not just environmental That's issues, right. they are social issues. They so, are social, yeah. health, they're, yeah. they're very, because it's very holistic for them. Mm. The environment is a complete package for us in terms of of life. So, so let me, let me just, passage. yeah, let me just read the, this passage here. And it deals with the time when um, there was a time, uh, one of the historical traumas was when our dogs that we rely on for transportation were, were killed off, were shot and killed off. And uh, so I, I, I'll start this here. Um, Numerous families who lost their teams couldn't hunt in the winter for many reasons, creating great suffering and dependence on social assistance. While some were eventually able to replace their teams with snowmobiles, many never recovered financially or emotionally. A number of these men slipped into alcoholism. It may be hard to understand why Inuit men and women don't protest the cold-hearted slaughter of the dogs that they not only depended on, but also had a deep bond with. Just as one might wonder why parents allowed their children to be sent off away for school or why families would agree to move into settlements instead of living the way they had for generations, did they really think that the Halunat, which is the white man, and the Southerners knew best? That all of these things were the right thing to do? Of course not. To understand why our people followed directions that were clearly counter, their culture, counter to their culture, their wisdom and their own interest, one needs to understand what we Inuit call ilira. In his book, The Other Side of Eden, British anthropologist Hugh Brody translates this powerful Inuktitut word into English, describing it as the mix of apprehension and fear that causes a suppression of opinion and voice. Ilira, he explains, is caused by people or things that have power over you, can neither be controlled nor predicted, people or things that make you feel vulnerable and to which you are vulnerable. So in those early days of interaction with Qadlunat men, church missionaries, Hudson's Bay officials, and government representatives, our people often felt intimidated. The Halunat had tools and technology that were foreign to us, and they clearly had power and a willingness to exercise it. What's more, their behavior was often at odds with our quiet, 
restrained way of approaching others. The Chalimnat's overt displays of anger and frustration were unnerving and scary. In the echo of the last howl, which is a documentary on the dog slaughters, one hunter describes feelings of ilra. The morning we were told to take the dogs up to the bay, compliant or submissive, worried, surprised, we obeyed, not daring to question. And Eli puts it this way, we had no choice but to relent. We would have felt ashamed to be arrested by the police for not complying. Ilra may explain our acquiescence with the Hallunak's demands, and it doesn't capture the shame and the pain caused by following directions that went counter to our culture. Poverty, dependency, coerced relocations, forced separation of families, the dog slaughter, the litany of historical traumas left many of our society angry and deeply troubled. Okay. And that's, mm. you know... It's one of those I, things where you don't know quite whether to clap or not, do you? Because it's so... You can imagine the tragedy of it. Mm-hmm. You, that, you must relate to the stories like that when you think about Torres Strait Island and... And the youth suicide in Australia for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think one of the things that I found really interesting about you, what you were talking about was how the, the new age of trying to meet the social determinants of health. And the, the biggest thing is when you look at suicide, you have to look at the cause... You know, just you know, just look at the the instant where somebody commits suicide. Because if you're serious about prevention, you look at the cause of the cause, and that is the, the social engineering that has become the fabric of Australian society, mm. and would be the same across the Inuits. Mm. And that social engineering that, that that's you know, it makes you stand there and wonder, well, well, it, what, what, what makes a young person think that it's okay to not no longer to live, why, why is life no longer worth living? Mm-hmm. And why is vulnerability, why is vulnerability not taken as a power? Why is vulnerability taken as a negative when it's not a negative? Because we've come through this way, all this resilience, and we've, we've strategically maneuvered through the social engineering and the social fabric of society. Vulnerability is a power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why isn't it being taken in that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you've been very strong on that, Sheila, haven't you, about the fact that don't see us as victims. See us as people who are right. remarkably in, right. in, inventive but, that have sustained mm-hmm. ourselves through all of this. Right. And I also say, you know, that the power of the hunting culture or the power of Indigenous culture that not only teaches children how to become natural conservationists and be great providers for your community and so on, but what it teaches you on the land and that ice for us is the character building and the resilience and the coping skills. It's powerful stuff when you're le- learning about yourself and, and as you develop uh, on that land and that ice. And when that is taken away, that's what we are afraid of the most, I think, is as the ice goes, so too will the wisdom and so too will the coping skills. And the source of the resilience and the itself. And the source of the resilience itself. Jesse, yeah. can I bring you in? Um, there have been a number of concepts here to do with shame, mm-hmm. um, compliance, um, power in two forms, one, the power that others have over you and the power that you have not to teach your vulnerab- take, take your vulnerability as a weakness. Mm. Do these things, um, are they more universal than just the Indigenous experience? From Absolutely. I mean, shame, I, I gave a talk yesterday about um, the suicide and whether suicide is, a, is, is sort of a, a uniquely human 
problem, whether we find any sort of analogous um, types of death in other social species. Do we? My answer is no, <laughs> um, but I, it's, a, it's a really nuanced answer, and I think you have to look at individual cases quite closely. Um, but my perspective is, is that this is a, a uniquely human problem because we experience a certain subset of emotions that are dependent on other people's evaluation of us. Um, shame is a really powerful one, but also the, the sense of burdensomeness, mm -hmm. um, you know, the ability to put ourselves into the shoes of others and um, see uh, ourselves from their eyes, even if it's sort of a, mm -hmm. a, um, a biased or warped perspective. That is a, a really um, significant contributor to suicidal ideation. So different reasons for shame, definitely, but I think the, the underlying uh, driver, that, that strong emotion um, of feeling somehow uh, um, less than others or judged uh, unfavorably is, uh, is, is something that is shared uh, across cultures. In other words, becoming over-identified with your thoughts and, and letting them just escalate to the, to the point where you can't differentiate between your thoughts and the, the true essence of who you are because you're thinking of that shame so much. Mm. All those thoughts so that come into play. So it overmasters you in some yes. sense. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing to do with um, language of power, sometimes it's expressed in slightly different terms around control, the sense that um, your life is something over which you have a proper amount of control. And I was saying to you, Vanessa, there was some evidence coming out of the Tiwi Islands where they'd had specific programs which were called anti-suicide programs, which made virtually no dent at all in the figures. But the moment they introduced a new set of practices where people started to feel control over their lives and their environment, although it was not intended to be an anti-suicide program, the rate starts to come down. Um, again, just I'll come to you in a moment on that, Vanessa, but before I do, Jesse, is that something that is that pops up in the literature more generally about that hopelessness, uh, you know, hopelessness. Well, anything that yeah. somehow alleviates that sense of, um, um, you know, this is the doomsday sort of prospect for an individual's life story that you can somehow intervene and, and change your destiny. So giving them control over it um, and, and making them empowered, of, of course, it's going to, um, I think, have a really positive effect. Vanessa? Yeah. In, in Australia, like prior to the 1960s, 1970s, there were no recordings of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicide. And it, it correlates, the dates correlate with the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander black deaths in custody. And so the recommendations from the, the um, Royal Commission were never implemented. Now we come to 2016 and we've got all these young kids that are being exposed to programs that have not been done in consultation with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, families, or with the young people themselves. Mm -hmm. And the programs are being implemented by non-Indigenous people that are culturally incompetent. And we are not seeing a culture collective, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture collective, where identity is okay. And, that, and that's what's missing in a lot of these programs. And, this, and the the other thing that's also missing is people aren't trained properly or effectively to identify how different cultures interpret depression. And it, without that understanding, we're not going to see 
a, a fall or a decline. Can, can you talk a bit about how different cultures do interpret depression? Sure. In, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, depression is not often talked about. It's, it's not an, a language word. And quite often, people just watch out for each other. So it's, it's a bit like um, when somebody has a disability or they're born with a disability and so it's your karma. So you've had it, it's done, and the people treat you the way you were and the way you are. It, it's, it, everything's done is community and family. So if you disrespect the culture, you disrespect the family. If you disrespect the family, you disrespect the culture. Everything is intrinsically lined like that. So everybody is encouraged to respect and understand the culture and family, and the unity continues. But with depression, the, the language word, there, there is no language word for depression. And when you come across areas like in the Kimberley and, and across in the Northern Territory, where the suicide rates are quite high for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, a lot of young people don't know how to communicate that they actually have depression. They don't know how to articulate what it is that they are feeling. And quite often you will find that they'll say things in, in their sentences. They'll say something like, I'm struggling to survive. And they'll keep talking. That's pretty direct, though. I mean, that's a, that there's not much room for ambiguity on that. But if you're talking about school and you're talking about family and you talk about friends and then all of the minute, in the middle you say, I feel like I'm struggling to survive. And then you continue to talk about school and you talk about family and you talk about your sports. It doesn't really say, I'm feeling depressed and I'm struggling to survive. It could be easily lost, absolutely. That's right, and it's set in the middle. Yeah. And because we... And we don't want to think that that's what they're thinking, necessarily. No. Well, how's your language? Do you have language which covers these concepts traditionally? Well, we, we, we've had to create language around suicide. And, and there's even a debate right now with, with the way in which we have um, translated suicide in our language. What, what's the debate about? Well, it's, it's, um, people are afraid of, of actually saying it too, too much in, in the fear that it's going to create more suicides. Mm. And so that debate goes back and forth. But for us, it's about expressing. We need to start to express. Yeah, the children is, need, yeah. to, need to express. This is a really big, you know? big point, I think, because you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, you give... You know, you try to communicate um, the underlying psychology, the sort of uh, experiences that people are having, being depressed and, and, and uh, experiencing or being bereaved by a suicide in the family. But there really is a, a sociological phenomenon of contagion with suicide. So if you, if you share that, um, you do see spikes, uh, you do. Um, you do. these effects in, in, in the immediate aftermath of, of uh, exposure. But on the other hand, if you don't talk about it, it's stigmatised and mm -hmm. people aren't well, getting Talking the about it e even in uh, Western society is relatively recent. I mean, Western society has uh, anathematised suicide for millennia. I mean, yeah. people who committed suicide, they weren't allowed to be buried in hallowed ground, all sorts of mm -hmm. really, you know... Oh, yes. no, yeah, I, I've actually... So, yeah, some of the cross-cultural uh, right. differences with suicide, you know, you find... Uh, I remember reading a, a piece, I think it was in Uganda, where they, um, somebody hangs themselves from a tree, they burn the, you know, they cut the tree down, they burn it, somebody, you know, they die in a room, they have to take the body out through the window, 
not through the door because the door will be somehow desecrated. Um, mm. But it's religion that. as well. I mean, it's religion complicates cross. things. Yeah, very much uh, so. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> was there was there any? Um, you talked about how older people at the end of their lives might remove themselves quietly and they'd go off into mm -hmm. the, the icy vastness where they right. would die. Um, were there any um, cultural taboos against somebody? Even, did the idea even exist well, that someone might take their well, life? Well, the, the more modern cultural taboo is re uh, religion-based. Right, which because is entirely imp imported from colonisation. Absolutely, yeah. because uh, still today, those who are religious and church-going will say, well, th the grief is even double because they're so worried that after their loved one has committed suicide, then he's in nowhere. Nowhere, he's mm. not in heaven, he's not in hell, he's nowhere. And, and will stay there forever. That's what religion dictates. And so there's this double burden again that families and communities carry when there has been a suicide. So when you were doing your counselling and things, did you have to address that issue? How did you, how did you in, talk to people about that? Yeah. You've got a religion who say that and yeah. doubles their grief? Yeah, no, um, that never, you know, one of the things that, that never really came up was for the 10 years that I was counseling with our kids because they were away from home and they were in university at that time. I was, I was dealing with addictions in those days, but the, the, the escalation really started uh, later on. And, and again, it became very contagious in particular when um, some of our, one in particular uh, elected leader took his life. And then there was this, huge um, numbers, you know, that followed afterwards. Mm. So there are really um, strict media guidelines in, in most... Well, here in Australia, yeah. there's a... Except if it, and strangely enough, there is an exception here in Australia that if a very prominent person commits suicide, they will report it. Yeah. But the ordinary rate of suicide is never described in case it encourages copycats. Yeah, and if you look, like I've been, in New Zealand, I've been, there's a great so small. archive yeah. that it's called Papers Past, sort of historical newspapers. And if you look at the way that they reported suicides in the 1930s, 1940s, they give incredibly detailed information about the methods, the reason, you know, the speculated reason for the person to die by suicide, the particular type of rat poison they used. Um, it's shocking if, if, if you read that now. But do you think that the evidence for not reporting on suicide is well-grounded? In other words, does a reporting of it or a discussion of it prompt It has to be to caref very carefully done. Um, and the, one, of the, 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 one of the major uh, concerns with contagion or epidemics with suicide or clusters is giving very specific mean, descriptive means of the suicide. So this is something that happened um, in uh, Asian societies, Japan, uh, specifically where the, there was this type of suicide that nobody had ever heard of before, but in the early 2000s, um, people started dying this particular way, which, you know, basically carbon monoxide poisoning in the house using a, a charcoal grill. Um, and the reason for that was because they, a really prominent newspaper sensationalized it, you know, described the method in really rich detail. And all of a sudden, it's like the second most popular or common type of suicide in the entire... <laughs> Uh, country. Before mm. that, nobody even had, it hadn't occurred to anybody to use that. Uh, That's method. interesting because when they did the Black Deaths in Custody Royal Commission report, that one of the things they focused on in the media was the, the suicides in jails right. and the hangings in jails, and they showed graphic pictures yeah. of Aboriginal people hanging themselves in jails. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we saw an escalation 
of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hangings by suicide, mm -hmm. suicide by hangings. And now, but if you actually go and ask the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander family, they don't want graphic detail right. of how their, their son or daughter has just committed suicide. One of, the, one of the things you raised um, uh, is the issue of cultural legitimacy um, in the responses that are made. And you talked about how too often there is no Indigenous input into how these things are actually answered. You, know, the, you talked about the insights into the deaths in custody inquiry. Uh, Professor Mick Dodson from the National Centre for Indigenous Studies and I have been working on Indigenous governance organisations. And this has come out as the central issue that it needs to be a legit, culturally legitimate system, which means it's never the one thing anywhere. It's always very particular. So you'll find something in Uendamu which is different than if you go up to Groot or into Wick and Merriam country. Yeah. And governments don't seem to cope so well with anything that's as fine-grained as that. They'd like things to be consistent and applied. I wonder is there, a, a, if we're going to address this issue, is there going to, have to be some fundamental rethink about what governments expect, what constitutes a good program, to take account of the difference that exists amongst cultural groups in Indigenous society? Well, they need to, and they also need to start looking at some of the data. There's some new surveys that have come out of Canada, and they've actually pointed out that, that um, communities that have high practising norms of culture have low suicide rates. I was going to say that. That's low your story, suicide. really? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, low suicide rates. And that's not rocket science. And what it requires in Australia is, like, we already know from, from, from colonisation that Australia had 500-plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages. Mm. So that tells you straight away there's roughly about 500-odd mm -hmm. nations across Australia of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. No two communities are the same. No two non-Indigenous communities are the same. Like, Sydney isn't like Melbourne. Mm. Thank heavens. <laughs> So, so what works in Melbourne is not going to work in Sydney. So what makes you think that what works in one Aboriginal community is going to work in the next Aboriginal community? You know, and, and it, it's about working with the people in that community because the people in the community know what is best for their own people. They know what's going on. They know what policies have impacted on their lives and why the situation in their whole community is as it is. Like you would not get someone in Queensland to go and work in the Northern Territory on the Northern Territory what is it, intervention. Mm. It, it just doesn't make sense. But, but, but Lynn, you know, this is who you're talking to. Yeah, but healing by culture. But yeah. how hard is this? I mean, you, yeah. you know, you've got... Well, Satellite telephones, yeah. helicopters, ballistic missiles, television, all coming in. Mm. And presumably no one's wanting to argue that Indigenous people go back to a completely no, pre-contact world. No, it isn't about that, but it's what you get from, you know, and I'll have to speak from, from my uh, lens and yeah, my, my yeah, culture. Um, healing by culture is, is a huge recommendation, that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada uh, has brought forth as a way, as a means to bring back the, the, the spirit of people that have been dispirited for so long as a result of these historical traumas and the rapid changes that have happened and the ongoing um, issues that we face with our governments who seemingly are, are trying to be helpful, but oftentimes they're not. In fact, as the, as the problems grow, uh, you know, the, the 
court halls grow, the health, the hospitals grow, the police force grows. It grows with the problem rather than dealing head on with what, it, what needs to be addressed. So healing by culture, there's a very concrete way, and I'll share this with you, and I do that, in, mm. and I think I did a bit already in the other talk. Our kids, it's not about either or, because we're in a modern world, but our kids who have had that training of developing their character skills, their resiliency, their coping skills culturally, on the land, on the ice, you know, learning to be patient, to be courageous, take survival-based risks, how not to be impulsive. One of the things that we've linked is suicide is a very impulsive act. Mm. And in particularly, if you are on drugs or alcohol, that's one of the things that compounds that, of course, if you're already feeling vulnerable. So if you have been taught on the land traditionally how not to be impulsive, and then if you were, your life was in danger and you put others at within risk. Seconds, you within say, seconds, you Within seconds, within seconds, you're mm. gone. And you've put other people at risk. Uh, all of those skills, you know, of resiliency, of sound judgment, of how to be wise in all the choices you make that the land and the ice teach you, are very ingrained as you're out there, but they're transferable to the modern world. So that when you come out uh, into a stressful situation, breakup of relationships is one of the biggest reasons why kids are taking their lives. At 16, 17, 18, you're supposed to break up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you're not going to stay with the same person at 16. But it's the coping skills, it's that whole thing of yeah. being ashamed, uh, rejected, all those things that surface. If you haven't learned the coping of what those life issues are about in a natural setting, mm. then yes, you're more vulnerable. And so that's why for me, you know, the right to be cold isn't just about the ice for what it stands for in terms of it being cold on our icy highways. It's the wisdom that it can give. And it, it's what, because when the kids are learning how the technical aspect of a hunt to aim the rifle and how to skin the seal, all those things, um, that's the technical. That's how the world works. But when you're learning about yourself, uh, the character building, all the, that's how you work, and that's what you're learning about. And so those kinds of skills kick in at times of great stress in the modern setting. So it's personal, form, so it's personal formation. It is, mm -hmm. but it, it is about culture. And, yeah. and, and that's the importance of maintaining a way of life is, is culture. And, and culture. Healing by you, culture. Culture teaches how to be resilient. That's right. And it teaches that's you how right. to be resilient in the natural environment. Absolutely. And then how you translate that across in the way the, the whole of the inequality in the, of society impacts on your life. That's right. It's another formation of it and another level. That's right. What, what do you make of this? Because, That's I mean, right. Jesse, I'm sit, sitting there listening to most people I'm who are from, I, from I, a non-Indigenous society are not necessarily going to be exposed to the customs, traditions, even the uh, environment by which those things can happen. But I think they're well, both... I'm actually thinking of, um, I guess, you know, uh, the other end of the spectrum would be people who are just frequently di displaced and don't have a strong cultural identity um, and the sort of feeling of discombobulation, I guess, uh, and, and not having a place and a home and uh, others that have a shared sort of cultural understanding and that can be very dangerous as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the New Zealanders, uh, settlers were, you know, the, the rates of suicide were astronomical. Amongst uh, the in, Europeans? Amongst the Europeans, yes. Oh, when they wow. found themselves in this, this sort of strange land 
um, and, and such an abrupt transition. When did that start to change then? What led them to... It's still high. It's still shockingly high, actually. New Zealand suicide rates are um, very high compared to... Amongst Maori and... Maori, Maori, Maori population... I mean, suicide, just like indigenous societies in Australia, it's... it's, it's um, it's unusually high, I guess. But, but are the Pakeha but much far behind? Or? Yeah, but overall, I mean, New Zealand as a whole, uh, it's still high, even among settlers. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, like the, what you tapped on just a minute ago with the you know, breaking up in a relationship, um, I talked uh, yesterday about how these sort of liminal states, when you go this sort of a static identity and what you're known for and sort of what you derive uh, respect for within your community and all of a sudden you lose that. Mm -hmm. It's that really abrupt loss mm -hmm. um, that makes people so incredibly vulnerable to suicide. So, you know, uh, breaking up in an adolescent relationship, but also just, you know, marriage, you know, going, mm -hmm. you know, being happily married, all of a sudden you're divorced. Being a single person, you know, you're not particularly at risk if you've never been married before. You don't sort of know the difference. It's the, it's that loss of identity. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens in, uh, in jails, you know, talked about uh, hanging, prisoners hanging themselves in jails. Suicide is far more common in jails than prisons. And the reason is because, you know, jails are sort of the holding facility. That's where they go immediately after they're arrested. They, it's this, you know, that's where they haven't had time to basically sort of habituate to this loss of freedom. For um, us, this would be where you're in remand rather than when you've been sentenced to an actual prison. In Australian language, yes. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Just translating. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, but once they've been in the pen, you know, in, in US speak, you know, for 15 years or something, they're no, they're, no, they're no more suicidal than the rest of the population. Look, I don't want us to appear to romanticise everything about Indigenous culture because, like every culture, there are things which are fantastic and there are some things that we're troubling. I just, the, the issue of taboo I talked about before, one of them was to do with whether there were taboos around taking one's own life. But there are other things too to do with identity that can give rise to the suicide in Indigenous society. And I wonder if you'd be prepared to share the story you told us a little bit earlier about, I don't know, was it an aunt or...? Cousin. Cousin. Um, sure. Your cousin? Sure. Sure, mm. I can say that. Um, so, um, one of my cousins, she had a same-sex partner in the Torres Strait, and this is back in 2000. And um, she'd been, she was roughly about 55 years old. She identified as, as a same-sex person all her life and her and her partner had been together for 10 years and they were both from the same island, different family groups and the families were just in, in just dire straits. They, they would not allow for, for um, a, 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 a same-sex relationship at all. And it got to a point where my cousin, it just became too much for her. So they went camping one night and she... Um, she doused herself with petrol and set herself on fire in the dinghy offshore so her partner couldn't save her. And, um, and it was because our communities wouldn't, wouldn't be respectful to LGBTIQ or same-sex same or sexuality and gender-diverse populations. And from that, there's been a turning point in the Torres Strait where um, uh, people are becoming more acceptable to the sexuality and gender diverse populations. And it, it was sad that it took such a tragedy to get to that point. But when at her funeral, there was both families came together at the funeral and they added over it on their island. And 
it, it was massive. People came from all around to honour this funeral and to honour this person because she was a person, mm. first and foremost. And the reality that prior to the, to, to the church, to religion, that those taboos did not exist. Mm -hmm. That we had um, transgender or sister girls, we call them in the Torah Strait, they were the holders of both knowledge, both male and female knowledge. There was no reason for someone to commit suicide because of their sex sexuality or gender. And it's interesting that now we see, see a whole cause and effect across Australia where we don't even realise a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people that are committing suicide, a high number of them anecdotally are part of the sexuality and gender diverse population that we haven't been able to, to capture or to monitor. And, and it's about educating. So traditionally they've been culturally <coughs> the sister the sister girl, um, known at least as they were on the TI, Torres Strait Islanders, had been perfectly well accepted and, re and had a respectable position as the holders of knowledge. A new set of norms come in and it's given rise to this. But, I mean, it is tragic, but they, it's amazing that the community was able to take that tragedy and change. Are there sim We've similar issues? Similar. How, how, we how are you doing? Because this is a new phenomenon mm -hmm. in some way. It is, it is. And I remember when my nephew uh, came out, uh, you know, he was very brave in a world that was so critical and so judgmental. Was it traditionally allowed to have um, same-sex relationships with Way back, in way back. Right. But not in living memory of those who are there today and who've been converted by religion. So it, it was never something that we felt was ours because of that, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the conversion into to religious beliefs, that it was wrong. And so, of course, the, the, the judgments have been there. It's been very bad for many, and we have lost many young people yep. who, to suicide. Is there, is a, is there a rethink going on now? Then? Yes, there is. Yeah. There is, and as I say, uh, you know, my nephew was part of that coming out so strongly in about 15, 20 years ago. And so now it's, it's safer and safer today. For is the, he living in the community still? Yes. He's, oh, oh, yeah. With oh, a yeah. partner? And very, very active uh, right. in the community, very well loved and respected. Um, but it wasn't always that way in the How beginning. How large is the community? I'm just curious. Uh, my home community is about um, 2,700 right now. About that. But yeah. the, you were saying longer. before, they're, they're traditionally quite small communities, aren't they? I'm sorry? I think you were saying in the earlier session Oh, yes. I mean, I grew up... The communities were quite small, yeah, four or five families. Yeah, just a few, few yeah. hundred people yeah. in, in, uh, in, in the communities. Some of them are, were much smaller. Jesse, one of the, you've worked on issues, as you mentioned, around gender and identity and things like that. Have yeah, you, so this is, I guess, where those themes... Did they start to... Eat? Do you see yeah. the linkage? Is it a consistent thing now? I mean, um, sexual minorities are clearly at risk of suicide, astronomically rate, high rates. Um, and I think it's, you know, I mean, I'm gay. I, I definitely experienced, uh, I, I continue to experience suicidal ideation. You know, I, I, I shared that yesterday in my talk. Um, but what made me suicidal as an adolescent was primarily... So you're saying by that, just to unpack it, so you, you yourself still think about suicide? Oh, yeah, it's suicide. Sort of a, a low-lying hum, I think, in terms of... Uh, uh, what, what, you know, it's sort of a, like a toothache. Sometimes it flares up, and, mm. uh, uh, but it depends on whatever crises sort of are lying in the horizon. A different story, but uh, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I'm a confessional science writer, as you yeah, know. No, but, but, but <laughs> anyway, but going back to my gay days, that's all. Yeah, no, so the, the, the sexual minority issue with, with suicide, I mean, that was the whole point of, you know, Dan Savage's It Gets Better. I know he was here a couple of years ago at yeah. the festival. And... Um, 
for me, it was just sort of, you know, this was a different cultural environment. I was living in the Midwest, in Ohio, in a small town, very conservative and unforgiving. Religious? Um, a religious community. My family wasn't particularly yeah. religious, but I, I definitely had been enculturated into that, uh, the, the, that sort of harsh judgment about uh, gays and lesbians being somehow defective or abnormal or... Um, just inherently bad, mm. and, and I had—I think I had just sort of uh, internalized that very deeply. So mm. I, I remember being, you know, a senior in high school and just—I uh, had, you know, I was dating girls. I was doing everything I could to sort of hide my identity, and you know, it was exhausting <laughs> to, mm. to, 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 you know, keep track of who knew what and what I was telling people, and um, you know, having to kiss girls that I had zero interest in kissing, um, and. Yeah, that wasn't pleasant at all, actually. But, uh, <laughs> but it was what I felt like I had to do, and I remember swearing to myself, I will go to my grave without ever telling anybody. That's how passionately mm. I felt about it. And I was just terrified of being outed before I wasn't prepared to be out and being exposed um, when I wasn't ready. And now it's, it's weird looking back, and I've been out of the closet for over 20 years. I've been with my partner for 10 years. I couldn't care less. Who knows I'm gay? I'm going to tell the whole world at this point. Um, but... Uh, it's changed. <laughs> but I can, I can see, obviously, I mean, if you're also living in a culture where it's, you know, oh, yes. indigenous, yeah. where the society in which you're based is saying, oh, it's not as good as this other one. You know, it's yeah. the equivalent. You're getting that message every day and what the effect yeah. of that would be. Mm-hmm. Look, let's throw it open to... Any, I mean, I, I wonder if there's anybody who's got any questions you'd like to put. Um, you just need to move from where you are in the, the rows to either side. There are two microphones. We'll get through as many as we can in the time that remains. And we've only got about 15 minutes, so... Um, we might start with microphone number one, if the lights could be brought up and the mic turned on. It's coming, coming, coming. Yep. yep. Just your name and... Thank you. My name is Tina. It's a very rich discussion today. Um, and you pointed to different areas of, you know, religion or culture that, you know, kind of um, makes depression people to commit suicide. And I think that... Um, you know, the very common and obvious um, reason would be colonization. And you, Sheila, talked about the historical trauma, which I also sometimes refer as intergenerational trauma. And I think that for indigenous people, the colonization hasn't stopped because mm-hmm. people are still oppressed and repressed and they still try to be fit into the Western and white narratives and frames. They still try to be normalized. On another point, um, they say that it will take three generations to, um, to heal this intergenerational trauma. So can you just point this to a question now? Yes. So um, it seems like a rhetorical question, but in this context of structural inequalities, do you think that this intergenerational trauma of colonisation will ever heal? Thank you. You want to go yep, first? Sure. What is it? Go, go, sure. well, you, can both, you can both answer yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead, though. I, I think... For it to heal, I think what you're talking about is you're referring to the macro-social factors of the social determinants of health. And, and that's when they're not met at the first stage of life, which is, which is history, which is colonisation, which is political um, economy, which is um, inequitable policy. Now, if they're not met at the first stage of life, it carries you through. And so your chances of committing suicide become much higher because your social determinants are not met. And so when you say, like, how can we now fix that. One of the biggest things we actually have to do, in Australia in particular, and we've started doing it, is looking at a process of decolonisation. It's really easy to say to Aboriginal people, get over it, colonisation had happened 200 odd years ago. But the reality is 
the system doesn't allow you to get over it because of the social inequality of policies that are always and completely and continuously today developed and imposed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. No decisions about us, without us. And that is when we start seeing change. Mm. Sheila? Mm -hmm. As I mentioned in the, the, the earlier um, session that we had, and also uh, I gave a TED talk in June, and that's going to be out in any day now, on making the connection of Aboriginal trauma and climate trauma being one of the same. Um, in Canada, you know, can you imagine, and I, and I did say this earlier, not in this session, can you imagine not having drinking water, proper clean drink, drinking water, not for a week, not for a month, but for decades? Can you imagine missing women, murdered missing women, not for a week, not for a month, your loved ones for decades and not knowing what happened? There are so many things that are still ongoing in our communities that does not lend itself for us to rise again and be the strong people that we are that have that resiliency and coping skills Can we're, because we're still in the state of emergency on almost on a daily basis and we're dealing with that. And that's why I was saying earlier, when we've had you know, floods or, or wildfires, for example, recently in the western part of our, pro, of our country and people came together very quickly to help, I said to them, imagine if your life was in that state of emergency, not for that week or that month that you were struggling with you know, wildfires, losing your homes and all of that, but for decades. And that's the way it has been left to be. And so until that changes, until we feel that we've got to add, put all of our resources, attention, focus, love, care, everything into those communities that are most needing that kind of help and intervention and, and the infrastructures that have to be put in place and the resources and the programs that are culture-based, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Thank you. Microphone two. Hello, my name is Caroline English. Question for Vanessa. I'm interested in your view on um, the idea of having a Royal Commission into Indigenous suicide. You mentioned there's a lot happening at the moment in um, considering the national approach to the issue and that there's a lack of cultural competence and how that's currently happening. Do you think a Royal Commission would be valuable or is the right approach? And if not, um, what might be an alternative? I think, I think a Royal Commission in, into anything is, is very good at bringing out the facts. It draws out the facts and lays it on the table. But the implementation of Royal Commissions and the flow and effect of what is going to happen, we don't see much outcome in Australia. So to do it on suicide, we already know the facts. How much more evidence do we need? Mm. We already see it every day. We see, you know, in March we saw a 14-year-old girl, a 10-year-old girl, sorry, commit suicide. We, we know the facts. We know what is going on. And we actually are starting to work out what works. And it's about coming back and saying, you know what, let's work with the communities. Let's work with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the families, the elders. Let's unpack this with them and their communities and work out the strategies together and then implement them and move forward. It's just, I mean, how many times has that been said? I mean, every, every time you ask an Aboriginal person, they will tell you that what needs to happen, but it doesn't. Uh, microphone one. Uh, my name is Roger Tonkin. Uh, my expectation of coming to this discussion 
was that I'd learn much more about why the incidence of, it, of suicide is so high in Indigenous populations. Uh, and Sheila asked or pointed very early to the need when looking at suicide to look at the cause and the cause of the cause. Mm. I felt for the first 15 minutes we just got bogged down in incidents and not so much the cause. And I'd like to thank Vanessa particularly for bringing that discussion back on track. Um, uh, my question is to Sheila. Um, as well as talking about cause, the causal chain, you mentioned social engineering. Uh, I, I, I think I understand why disenfranchisement and alienation and disadvantage would lead Indigenous people to feel, to, to take that step to suicide, but I don't quite see the causal link with social engineering. So who and what is doing the social engineering? What is the manifestation of social engineering in the Indigenous population in Australia? And how does that lead to suicide? In Australia? Or no, she's well, actually from Canada. So you're asking Sheila or Vanessa? Have I got them? Sheila's from Canada. Vanessa's from Australia. Sorry, I've got them around the wrong way. So <laughs> Vanessa, is the question, is that whom the question is for? The question is to Vanessa then. Yes. OK. And my thanks were to Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> So you kind of win and lose, whichever way. <laughs> so, Vanessa, it's a question about Australia, yep, about social engineering, social engineering and, and what's the causal effect that leads to the kind of hopelessness? Well, or the cause of the cause. Well, what is the manifestation of that social engineering and then what okay. is the causal effect? Right. OK, so when you talk about social engineering in Australia, what I was referring to was, was the way that the policies have been developed over the years. Now, we have policies back from colonisation such as, such as the White Australian policy or the protection policy. Now, those policies, so the protection policy or segregation policy, were, part of, were the policies that formed the stolen generation. Okay, so the stolen generation theoretically finished in 1971. In some states and territories, it finished in 1984. And then what we see now is children into out-of-home care. So that fabric that fabric, that social engineering has become the fabric of Australian society, whereby we have nearly a hundred years of people being taken, stolen generation, but we also have a hundred years of people, non-Indigenous people, thinking that it was okay to take children. And that, that social engineering has manifested itself as a cause, because now we see policies with the name change, with the similar intent happening in Australia. So we don't see actual change. So just to go to the question then, if you've identified that those policies as a manifestation of social engineering is removal of children, stolen oh, generations. Now, he's asking, why is that a cause of suicide? Okay, so you, now we have the trauma because we have all these young people. These young people, the highest suicide rates in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are in young people. 18. The zero to, uh, sorry, 18 and the 13 to 18 year olds, there's almost 30% of suicide rates. 15 to 24 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people are nine times more likely to commit suicide to non-Indigenous people at five times. So what we're seeing now is, that, is a transgenerational trauma coming across because the disadvantage and the poverty has not changed. It is continuously mm -hmm integrated within society. Okay, we've got time for one more, I think. We'll see how you go. 
Thanks. Uh, my name's Dave Yates. Um, I've got a question about um, treaty and constitutional recognition for um, the First People, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders um, here in Australia. And um, how far do you think that would go towards the, we mentioned decolonisation, um, healing through culture, how would that contribute to those projects um, in order to reduce the, the suicide rate? It's one to you. Well, we'll come to you Vanessa. Vanessa, Vanessa, Vanessa first, and you might comment, because there have been treaties in, in yeah. Canada. So, yeah. Vanessa? I think, um, first of all, I don't, I, don't, I don't think this is a platform for treaty recognition discussions. But anyway... Um, would it make, I think he's asking, would it improve things if... Control. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is a control measure, but we don't understand the full context of the recognition campaign because a lot of the underlying theory of, of recognition and recognising in the Constitution has not been clear and has not been laid on the table. A same for a treaty has not been laid on the table. So to say that would it make an impact on suicide, I do not know. Did it have, when you, in Canada? Yeah, you, in Canada, this, you know, so. in Canada, we have four regions where we Inuit live. Uh, we, we live in four countries, but in Canada alone, we have four regions. Uh, most of them now have what we call land claim agreements that have been settled. And some recently, in the last few years, others have been 20, 25 years ago, they were settled. And so it isn't necessarily the success of a land, green, uh, land uh, agreement, land claims agreement, that would then interpret into a better life or, and, and lower statistics. In fact, it, it rose. It's been rising. The, the suicide rates have been rising, even if we think that we have these institutions that we are in control of. But in reality, it has shown that we're really not in control of those institutions that we have taken on because they're not culture-based, most of them. Our education system is not necessarily culture-based. So we're repeating the mistakes of, of, of these institutions that really haven't even worked for their own people, much less it couldn't work for us. So, um, but in having said that, uh, and these land claims, by the way, are not even implemented fully because it takes 25 years to even try to get them implemented. So, but the thing is, we have some of our own organizations that are working really hard. So I don't want to end this by saying we're, we're very, um, we're, we're not going anywhere. We are going somewhere. Recently in the, the Inuit homeland, uh, the, what we call the Inuit Teperit Canademy, which is the national body, the pan-national body that deals with the politics of all Inuit of Canada, have, has finally, it's late, but it's, it's, at least it's out, a national Inuit suicide prevention strategy. That's very recent. And there's much hope that we'll be, we're, that's riding on that. But there is that now. I think you also need to remember that um, the connection that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to the land doesn't need an institution to develop it. It mm -hmm. was already developed for tens of thousands of years. Right. And the other thing is, when you talk about um, the strategy, we have a national strategy in Australia, but we also are looking at now a registry, a national registry, so we can actually have accurate data and we know what we're doing instead of running around chasing our tails across mm. all populations. Mm. We're pretty much out of time. Mm. Um, hey, if you've missed... Oh, sorry, you wanted... No, good, I lined up behind all them white fellas and I think I'm the only Aboriginal <laughs> man that asked the question. Jump in there. So,
With respect, I'll ask a question. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask about a couple of things, and I have to explain it a little bit because death has got a lot of uh, protocols, a lot of laws around it, mm. and those laws, because of our fractured communities, like stolen generations, who don't have an understanding of traditional law, and uh, particularly the law of reciprocity and payback. But what happens when suicide happens in our communities is that families fight. Mm. Communities are divided. Organisations that they're aligned with are targeted as well, so that if you go to that organisation, then you're out. You're not part of this family and we don't have you at our functions or anything like that and we totally block you. That, that happens with our communities and that also leads us to talk then, when we talk about decolonisation, is to question the oppression. Mm -hmm. And to question the oppressive power and that underlying power that they have, it's latent, they never talk about it, that it's good to have, see us divided. It's good to see us not having any programs of reconciliation for ourselves, but have reconciliation with them, the oppressor. It's good for them to go ahead and look at us and look at our land rather than look at us as people. But we never ever try to understand the psyche of them hiding behind all of these words about trying to help us, spending lots of money that we know gets uh, funneled into administration and spent on in administration, then used by the government to say that they're chucking billions of dollars at Aboriginal mm -hmm. and Torres Strait Islander people. There's a cover-up going on, and uh, that is part of suicide as well. Thanks. Thank yeah, thanks for jumping in. I'll take that, I'll take that as a very valuable comment. Um, do, you want, do, do any of you want to comment in response just before we wind up? No, no I, I think it's very valuable because we, yeah. have, we still have the institutional uh, racism that goes on mm. yeah. and does not uh, effectively work for the people. And, and I'd, I'd just like to add that any form of decolonization needs support. It needs support on both sides. People need support to go through the process of decolonization, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Mm -hmm. It is valuable. Mm -hmm. I think if people are wondering about what often lies at the cause of these things, you can imagine what it might be to have any suggestion that who you are or your way of life is worthless mm -hmm. or worth less than others. Right. And uh, for those who are looking for clues, um, I'd ask you to consider this notion of cultural legitimacy and how people whose lives are being affected in this way consistently ask and are consistently denied an opportunity to establish responses which fit within their cultural environment. And there isn't a sing I can tell you in Australia, there is not a single indigenous view of what that is. Every community has its own particular answer across yeah. those 500 plus Absolutely. different nations. Probably the same, I'd say, mm -hmm. in First Nations. Look, it's a sombre topic. Um, I think, I talked to the others, we're all, believe it or not, optimists. Um, about the fact that it can be done better. But on that hopefully somewhat op more optimistic note, could you please join with me in thanking Jesse Bering, Shira Watsuda, and Vanessa Lee. Thanks. And you can see them for signings out in the book thing. 
If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.